Hello everyone and welcome back to episode 4 of Video Store Nightmares, the podcast where we talk about the bizarre, the strange, and in tonight's case, the musical films from the VHS era. My name is Luke and I'm joined by Leland. Greetings, Earthlings. Are you ready for the sixth dimension? Leland is upgrade Leland has upgraded his dimension and he should sound better. Hopefully. But uh yeah, that's not the same sixth dimension as this film. Um, so, Leland, before we even get into the plot of this film, I just want to get this out of the way. How do you feel about this movie's treatment of race? Well, I did the math, and I believe it's been almost 15 years since I've seen The Forbidden Zone. I've seen it maybe about three times. Like, if a condom broke during the end credits since the last time I saw this film, like my internet would be tied up daily by my kid attending high school via Zoom meetings, right? So maybe I don't or I didn't remember all the finer points of the Forbidden Zone. And so like when I when I went to rewatch this, yeah, I'm hyped to rewatch this film and relive some nostalgia because this was perhaps my first surrealist film. I sit down. I hit play on the VCR, the narrative scrolls, and then suddenly, bam, blackface in the 80s. And then my thoughts like start racing like, fuck, did, did the rest of this movie age just as poorly? And then, of course, it's established in that opening scrawl that he's a drug dealer or like, no, it's classier than that, right? It's narcotics peddler, like Winnie the Pooh in a tux all up in this shit with his pinky up, narcotics peddler in the fancy font. Um, I was, I do, maybe it's because I'm more sensitive to this stuff now because it's been, you know, about 15, maybe more years since I've seen this, but yeah, it, it came, it came and hit me right away. So I have a thought on this, but with that said, do you find this film racist? I think it's a product of its, I, th I think it's a product of its time to a degree. Um, I mean, as you pointed out, like blackface was already unacceptable in 1980. Yeah, but the I, I, th I don't think there's much deeper meaning or messaging behind this film. I think it's like truly an embodiment of chaos. But I do think that there is a huge influence from 40s slapstick comedies like the Three Stooges and cart and like um, adult cartoons of the same time period, I think the director was inspired or trying to at least recreate the feeling and setting of those forms of media. And blackface was undoubtedly a presence in those mediums. So was this something that he was just merely referencing to or is this something he actually thinks is funny and is is in putting it into his film so i have an answer for that um and i this is something i've thought a lot about and for our listeners if you haven't figured it out by now we are discussing the 1980 uh musical surrealist fantasy film the forbidden zone uh directed by richard elfman and starring his then musical group, uh, the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo. And 
actually both of us just called this a surrealist film and i would disagree i don't think it's surrealist i think it's absurdist and that's an important distinction to me like surrealism bends the lines of reality right absurdism combines out of context elements that seem incongruous with reality and as a result of those objects being in places they ought not be it can create comedy and richard elfman has called this an absurdist film my take on the blackface as well as some of the jewish stereotypes in the film is a what you just pointed out that a lot of it is influenced by 1930s 1940s and even earlier uh, musical theater and animation but also by putting an offensive image in an absurdist context it strips it of its meaning and given that like i'm a white guy i am not the person to say whether this is offensive or not but i think that in dealing with something like blackface there's two ways to go about it one is to censor it and the other is to make it absurd and by making it absurd i think you strip it of its power and as a result i think films like this or art like this is actually really important in doing that like i don't i, I think you've seen the terry zweigoff movie ghost world right i think okay i think i've seen that but it's been a very very long time i don't remember it very well all right so i love that movie but one of the things that um the main character in that movie finds a poster of a fast food restaurant from the era of jim crow and it has a character with blackface and the name of the restaurant it's coon's chicken and she submits this poster as found art in her class and she's kind of bullshitting in the movie why it's important but she basically says that when we see an image like this we're shocked and we have to ask ourselves why it's so shocking because we're seeing it not in its original context but in an absurdist context in a classroom in you know 2001 or whenever that movie came out and I think that this is that to an even stronger degree. I think that it's important to strip images like this of their power. And the only way to do that is to put them in a context of absurdity. So you say all that for this film, but I only found out recently that there's a colorized version of The Forbidden Zone. And my first thought was that some studio bought the rights and prepared the film to be more palatable for a modern audience. But actually, according to the director, it was originally supposed to be in color. And I'm sorry if I'm mansplaining this to you, if you know it already, or stop me if I'm jumping too far ahead. No, but keep going. Richard Elfman like, essentially funded and filmed this movie piecemeal while working two jobs with zero film production experience. Even most of the actors like kickbacked their paychecks into the production. So the original intent, according to the director, was to film in black and white 
then colorize everything on the cheap in China, which was the style at the time. But he loaded the film onto a freighter to China, possibly the slowest boat ever because the job wasn't finished before the debut. So in the end, the Forbidden Zone was shown in black and white. When I was looking for trailers for this film or clips for this film, I was finding a lot of color colorized scenes. And the thing that immediately jumped out to me was that the blackface guy was recolored to be a traditional porcelain white painted clown. So, you know, is the director trying to save face by recoloring it? Is the edit in line with some regrets about the initial inclusion? Or was this like a necessary change so that the film wouldn't be held back when introduced to new audiences? Yeah, so I have an answer to that too. And the story's a little more complex um, than the narrative you just gave. Uh, He colorized the film in 2008 for the same reasons that you just specified. But the 2008 colorized version maintains the blackface. In 2020, so just last year, he went back and digitally changed it to clownface. And I saw an interview where he said that immediately after he had made the film, he regretted using the blackface and that his intention in the movie was just to combine every absurdist image that popped to mind. And he was kind of thoughtless about its history or its power to offend. And so because he lost the rights to it for a long time and because the technology wasn't available, this was his first chance to go back and make a change that he wanted to make, in his words, as soon as the movie had been finished. With that said, I don't agree with that decision. Like, I actually think you should keep the blackface in um, for the reasons that I specified. Like, making it clown face strips it of... It's like putting an absurd image in an absurd context instead of putting a real image with baggage into absurd context. And I don't know, I just find the latter more meaningful. Maybe this is my inner deconstructionalist coming out, but this is this is my feeling. So I am against when studios like Disney and and you know Warner Brothers try to hide the fact that they've done cartoons with racist depictions. I don't think that's right. But I don't see anything inherently wrong with taking an old piece of art and updating it for modern sensibilities because the movie is great outside of like this one part that didn't age very well. And it it would be a shame to throw out, you know, the baby with the bathwater in this case by by just dumping the whole film. If you're able to just change one aspect of the film and still carry the vast majority of the substance i don't really see that as a loss but i also don't really have a horse in the race for uh you know trying to like destroy or de-iconicize like uh you know racist imagery like i don't really have a a stance on that necessarily it it would be one thing if the only quote unquote inappropriate thing in the film is the blackface but we've got lots of like 
homophobic jokes. We've got extreme Jewish stereotypes. We've got depictions, albeit comical, of rape. We have like fat shaming. I mean, you name it. If if there is a group to offend, this movie at least tries. So I, I don't think it's just a matter of like, well, we tweak this one thing and the movie suddenly acceptable. I think you either take this as an absurdist film that deconstructs these offensive iconographs or you just take it as an offensive film that doesn't care what racist, sexist, um, phobic uh, traits it deals in. And, and I, I just, I think that as a piece of absurdist art, whether Richard Elfman sees it this way or not, I think it does have the power to strip these offensive things of their meaning because they are it's like playing a game of cards against humanity right like everything within the context of this film is inappropriate but it's also all meaningless and i think that has a sort of power i de i definitely think that the the film is meaningless right and that is really an accomplishment to assemble all of these offensive things into something that, you know, it, it's it's almost nihilist, nihilistic, right? Where it again assembles, like you're saying, um, you know, homophobia, transphobia, racism, all into one single package, but is still a comedy. It's definitely not a standard film, like you're saying. Um, I there's nothing standard about it. You you are right that. Maybe, maybe I am zeroing in on the racism and I am so emotionally jaded that like the rest of it is just standard offensive movie fare. And I am like, I'm almost like building up an immunity to it, right? Perhaps that is why none of those other images just really struck me as hard as bam, blackface in the beginning. Yeah. No, I, I get that. And and some of the other things are slightly more subtle. Um, and, and some of them have been explained away by the director in ways that I think are satisfactory, but we'll get there. Um, to start, so before we get into the plot of the film, I just want to go through a brief history. I don't want to do an entire rundown of like the history of Oingo Boingo, but I think we should give a little bit of context Actually, when I announced that we were doing this as a film, uh, my buddy EK over at the Laser Graves podcast said that he and Mariah were thinking of doing an episode on Oingo Boingo, and I hope they do because they're really good at going through the history um, in a way that this just isn't equipped to. But with all that said, the, the origins of this film were in Richard Elfman's theatrical performance art group, the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo, in which his younger brother, Danny Elfman, was a member. I'm a little shaky on the timeline here, but at some point, Richard kind of got bored with the Mystic Knights and decided that he wanted to transition into filmmaking. And so he quit the group 
and Danny took over. And while Richard was starting to get into filmmaking, Danny decided that he wanted to take the band in a more typical band direction. He got interested in ska music, in punk music, in new wave music, and decided to form a more typical marketable rock band. And that, of course, became Oingo Boingo, which I think was one of the best bands of the 80s. So Richard, now that he's off directing movies, grows nostalgic and wants to make a movie that captures the energy and the spirit of the Mystic Knights performances. And that's where this came from. And it was an attempt to adopt some of their performance art, uh, some of the original songs they'd written, but also their love of 1930s and 40s jazz standards. And you already said a little bit about like the financial toll that it took on him, but that's where we got this film. So that's a little bit of the history. So with all that said, why don't we play the trailer and then we're going to run through the plot in a little less of a structured way, but uh, there's lots of great conversation to be had. Just keep saying to yourself, it's only a movie. It's only a movie. It's only a movie that will have you living in the sixth dimension, moving in the wrong direction. A new fantasy musical comedy. The Forbidden Zone. To start this film, we get that same music that was just playing in the trailer, the Forbidden Zone theme, and we get awesome, incredibly awesome opening animation with like roller skating skeletons and the zoom-ins of dice that have the actors' faces on them. How did you feel about the animation in this film? The animation in general kind of reminded me of like the old Monty Python skits, especially when we get into the transitions for the Forbidden Zone itself. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah, I, I loved it. It's one of my favorite parts of the film. I, I totally agree. Uh, this animation was done by, name, by someone named John Muto, who went on to do visual effects for all kinds of Hollywood films. Like he had a long career afterwards, so he's worth checking out. But I, it, I agree. I absolutely love the animation and it syncs up so well with the set design, which was done by the actress who plays Frenchie, who also was married to Richard Elfman at the time. It, it was just like the perfect melding of visual minds. They were so in sync with one another. With this film, I feel like there is there, there was like celestial alignment required to pull off this film. Like it wasn't just the effort on behalf of the, the actors, the crew, but like the timing was right to have all of these like various mechanics just come together to produce this film. 
yeah i mean you can you can tell that these guys are used to working together um and you can look up their performances on the gong show which they did before this movie and see kind of some early iterations of what would come to be in this movie but they're definitely more rudimentary but what strikes me is that the movie has such a distinctive visual scheme like we've got dice skeletons caves the mickey mouse ears everything is is very cohesive and it seems like somebody in the troupe had like a design background to me uh to pull all this together but maybe it was all richard and in combination with uh his wife i, I don't really know but however it happened it, i think they really pulled it off i love looking at this thing there are some uh, consistent like visual motifs throughout the film but it still feels like one giant stream of consciousness barf onto a projector yes i mean it, Richard said that he wrote the screenplay sort of after the fact to try to tie together the disparate musical numbers. And, and while I can see that, I think the story here is is pretty effective in, in terms of stringing the scenes together. I mean, you know, the it, movie is so disjointed because he, again, like filmed and produced it like one piece at a time on like a bizarro schedule. But I think that just sort of lends its own feeling to the chaotic nature and environment that this film just like exudes from every orifice if if you haven't seen this film first of all you should go watch it but uh the plot insofar as there is one involves this family the hercules family who has a door to the sixth dimension in their basement and what i love is that with the exception of frenchie who's been out of town in France, the whole family is aware that this door is down there and acts like it's totally normal, right? Like, oh, there's a door down there to the sixth dimension. It, it's not treated as supernatural in the slightest. And I don't know, I've never noticed or thought about it in that way in my past viewings, but it's the first thing that struck me this time. I don't really try to make sense of anything in this film. I mean, oh. really, there's not even much of a difference between the, the IRL portrayed and the sixth dimension. They're both just as absurd. Yeah. And, and that has a lot to do, I think, with the sets. So the first musical number we get, and this is a full-blown musical for our listeners, is uh, Some of These Days, which I think is, one, it's a great song, um, but also the way that it's filmed, we get to see all of the characters in sequence. So we get flashes to the sixth dimension and we see the Hercules family singing. And at some point, uh, the father, Pa Hercules, starts to sing and his voice in this scene is taken from Cab Calloway. It's not the actor singing, uh, but it syncs up so well. Like, the Cab Calloway vocals here and the lip syncing. Actually, all of the musical scenes are filmed with the skill of someone directing like a music video. They're, they don't seem amateur at all. No, uh, I do recognize the huge amount of effort and quality of this first musical number, but this is actually my least favorite part of the film. Really? 
I, yeah, I, I mean, I'm not very musically inclined. I'm not a big musical guy, but like, I don't, I can't, this is the only song in the movie where I can't even understand half the lyrics, but like the direction and the editing and all that, I, I, I really appreciate that. But outside of like seeing these are the characters, I actually have no idea what they're singing about most of the time in this one particular musical number. I mean, some of it is just wordless vocals, right? That Cab Calloway like specialized in. So it's not all real words, but yeah, I can see how even the real words are, are difficult to understand if you're not used to listening to this genre of music. Like that over-exaggerated French accent. If I don't even know if you could call it French. It's like super French, uber French accent. And then the father has like a, bizarre Swedish accent or something. Yeah, I think it's supposed to be a Yiddish accent. Yeah, um, something like that. But uh, there, I think Yiddish and, and Swedish are actually closely related as languages. Um, but with that said, uh, so this is interesting. Frenchie's vocals, for the most part, are performed by the actress. And yeah, this is an absurd, ridiculous French accent. Uh, that does not sound convincing in the slightest. But when she sings, that's actually Josephine Baker, who was actually French. And these are some like classic musical numbers of hers that Oingo Boingo weren't performing. They were just lifting. So uh, her voice alters in and out of her own fake French accent and Josephine Baker's real one. So after this musical number, we transition to school. And more so than the sixth dimension, this school is the home for the movie's most absurd images to me. As is tradition for films we cover on Video Store Nightmares, adults playing traumatized children. Yeah, but here it's like... Well, I guess I said this last week, too, and I think that John Waters and Richard Elfman share some kinship. Um, it's intentional here, right? Like, we're not actually supposed to think these are children. No, I mean, this This is actually supposed to be more of a special case than the last film, because, like, you know, at the risk of sounding like that one greasy libertarian guy that, like, everyone's met in college, age in the forbidden zone is just the number. Like, really, it, it doesn't matter at all because time, language, physics, like all the laws of the universe have no meaning in either the sixth dimension or the IRL that's showcased. Like, none of it matters. Right. And, and that's, I mean, that's the absurdism at play. And I think it, it's what separates this from a traditional surrealist work like maybe Louise Bunel would do. Um, or even like Alejandro Jodorowsky have their own mediums they're working in. This is different. This this is literally meaningless uh, combination of images, but that makes it really funny to me. I should point out that I've seen this movie a bunch of times. Like this, this is a regular watch for me, uh, but it's also, I love the soundtrack, so I can keep going back to it. But in this scene, we meet Squeeze It, uh, who is probably one of our most important uh, characters. And S Squeeze It is played by Matthew Bright, who co-wrote this movie together with Richard Elfman. And 
he went on to be, in my opinion, a great writer and director. Uh, he wrote and directed the 1990s Reese Witherspoon movie Freeway. Did you ever see that? No. Oh, I highly recommend it. It's fantastic. In fact, it would not be out of place in this podcast in the future. It's got Reese Witherspoon and Kiefer Sutherland. And it's like, the best way I can describe it is a modern white trash trailer park adaptation of Little Red Riding Hood. No, that is definitely something I have not seen. It's fantastic. I, I really recommend it. But anyway, so he went on to write and direct that movie. Um, a few other things, but that's the one that, like, if you're going to investigate his work, go watch Freeway. And he also plays uh, his twin sister, Renee. Now, do you think that we are supposed to take Renee as transgender, as a biological cis female, or just as a totally meaningless, absurd amalgamation? meaningless absurd amalgamation however i am pretty sure someone in the script specifically calls her trans i don't remember that but but what's his name the the main guy um flash flash calls him calls him a dude or something uh says he's not a broad he's a dude and then calls him a faggot <laughs> yes but i don't remember the tr the word trans being used but I might have missed it. I could be misremembering. So I've got to mention this scene because I absolutely love it. When Squeeze It is telling us about the sixth dimension and we get some images from it, one of them is of the queen like giving the king a sort of sexy look and she's a bite, about to bite down on a huge sausage. And Susan Tyrell, who plays the queen, she makes this movie for me. This is my favorite performance. I love watching this woman's expressions. I think both uh, the king and the queen are the best parts of the film. Yeah, so the the Susan Tyrell um, is in a lot of great movies. Like our listeners will probably know her from John Waters' Cry Baby. She was in... Uh, uh, she's she's been a lot of of good horror movies, and she always plays like really wonderful trashy parts. She's a bartender in Rockula, uh, which is a really interesting performance. But so I love her, and then the king is played by oh I can't pronounce this name. Hervéviches. Um, that's it. That's it. Hervé. So this guy we would know from the Love Boat. But we were also talking before this recording, and you said that he had a biopic. Yes, I only saw mention of it. I believe it was made around 2000, like the, the late 2000s. Starring, apparently it was either written or starring Peter Dinklage. That is about the extent of what I looked up, but that is something I'm probably going to try to watch in the future. Yeah, well, let me know, because I'm curious. But getting back to the class scene... I don't even know where to start. Leland, how would you describe this classroom scene? You know, I, I think this is the future the conservatives want, right? Arm the teachers. Like, <laughs> I think this initial school scene was probably really absurd back in the day. But like automatic weapons in school is now like, uh, unfortunately, the most realistic thing about this movie, right? Yeah, when this is the more so than in past viewings, 
when the teacher whips out the the gun which is like a tommy gun i I just thought like wow you could definitely not do this today um hits way too close to home but aside this this was the 80s the stuff didn't happen yet no i mean for for people who are younger like columbine changed everything right but yeah this was i mean it's amazing If, if you're into 80s films the what we now view as cultural taboos and offensive images they're just rampant right but in addition to the the tommy gun teacher we've got squeeze it who's like a human chicken we've got two girls with like nose hooks who are played by the kipper kids who were also like a performance art duo we've got a Hitler, and then we've got like a very stereotypical black gang back in the right hand corner. So this is another part that's been that's gotten Richard Elfman accusations of racism. But the the Elfmans actually went to like an inner city, primarily black school. And they make jokes about like going to that school as pale kids with red hair and uh, not fitting in. But Richard said that this was an exaggerated scene out of a real classroom, that there were shootings near school and there were like gambling and gang activities going on in class. So as as racist and, and as problematic as these kids seem, uh, and I use kids loosely because these are full-grown adults, right? Apparently, this was not that far off from reality. I mean, what do you think about that? You know, after after my initial, you know, startle at the beginning of the film, my my first, you know, thought was like, you know, is this like some kind of like racist, outdated prediction, um, you know, depiction? But I, I don't really think it is. I mean, you could you know, argue that it's in bad taste, like most of the movie, but I, I don't see it necessarily as being racist. I mean, with the exception of like the wire, I don't think there is an accurate portrayal of like black inner city students in film. They're either turned into naive victims a la sister act two, or they're, portrayed as kind of as they are in this movie as like natural criminals so get if you haven't go watch the wire it's like a college course in a show everything comes back to the wire but i didn't really um interpret these guys in the movie as being like natural criminals well i don't know they're 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 playing poker and at one point one of them shoots another one yeah, and when con- <laughs> right when confronted by the teacher, he says the man was cheating, so I just had to do away with him, and that's all there is to it, which is possibly my favorite quote in the movie. Death has no meaning. Life has no meaning in this film because nothing has meaning. Oh yeah, I'm pretty sure the guy who gets shot comes back later. Yeah, the very next school musical number, he's in the back dancing with everybody else. But this is one of my two favorite scenes. So my two favorite scenes in this movie are the the man was cheating scene 
And at the very end, when Susan Tyrell, the queen, gets shot by Ma Hercules, and she does this expression where she like raises her arms in the air, and it's like, what the fuck? That those are my two favorite moments. Yeah, that that scene is just like her shrug is basically what I'd imagine most people's reaction to the entire movie be on a first viewing. What what is your favorite scene in this movie? My favorite scene is coming up. It's actually the musical sequence that involves the Kipper brothers in the boxing ring. And yeah, okay. The dude so, in the mouse comes out. <laughs> so so we're gonna get to that in a moment. Uh first we we hear Frenchie sing, and this is the Josephine Baker song. Um, but yeah, pretty quickly after that, Frenchie goes down into the forbidden zone and she says Oh, I hear a rumba. And and then we get the scene you're describing. So why don't you talk about this scene? Why do you like it? it? I think this is the most absurd part of the film. It is also probably the least offensive um, as far as actual content, but it's very aesthetically offensive, right? You have these two dudes just making noises, just noises. There's no dialogue, but it's to music but it's not anything that could be seen as traditional or normal. It's all very bizarre. While you already mentioned, but while the Kipper kids are, are singing, we get this boy come out with backwards. Yeah. With, with Mickey mouse ears on and he sings part of the song. So apparently this was a boy that lived in Richard Elfman's neighborhood but he was so shy that he, when it came time for him to sing, he couldn't sing, which is why you have these really oddly imposed lips on top of his. And those are actually Matthew Bright's lips um, who plays Squeeze It and, and co-wrote the movie. But I, I never knew in the past like why on earth those lips were superimposed over his face this is the most jarring visual image to me in the whole movie. Like, I'm so glad it's in, even if it's accidental. It's something about seeing another pair of lips on top of someone else's face singing and it doesn't quite match is like horrifying to me. This is like what I'm talking about because until you just mentioned that, I thought it was intentional. Like, I thought that was the plan all along. Like, this man somehow dreamed this up wrote it down, committed it to film. I mean, well, he it's, it's, he dreamed up this solution, right? Right. But like, it's things like this that really make the film. And I don't know if you can really intentionally set out to make something like this then, if this was just all like a, a matter of circumstance, right? Like addressing problems on the fly during production. Yeah, but even if it's addressing problems on the fly and it's not pre-planned, I don't think that takes anything away from it. It's still a solution coming out of the mind of Richard Elfman or Matthew Bright or whoever came up with this idea. No normal person would come up with this idea, right? <laughs> They'd think like, ah, oh, well, we have to cast a different actor or, uh, you know, we we dub his voice. But to actually superimpose the lips who thinks of that did you see this scene in color no 
Neither have I. I'm curious if they made the skin tone the same or if they purposely went with two different skin tones. Like for the superimposed mouth. Yeah, I I mean, even if they were the same skin tone, it would be the the incongruity of it is obvious. That said, um, something like this in the 80s was probably a little harder to do in editing. But like nowadays, that would be a TikTok filter. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so is there anything else you want to say about this scene, this musical number? I, I think this is like the most brilliant part of the film because it's just completely, it's just complete nonsense. Yet it has this like harmony that carries it through all the way to the next part of the plot, which is Frenchie getting caught by the topless princess and her frog servant. Yeah. Like anthropomorphic frog paper mache head. Yeah. So this is where we also get the meeting between Renee and the King and Queen and I, I mean, I'm, I keep harping on this, but Susan Tyrell is so fucking good in this movie. Like, her facial expressions during the scene, her obvious jealousy because the king is is into Frenchie, she's all I stare at during this scene. Like, my eyes just go straight to her. You know, much like Divine, I, I think that she is one of the, the aspects of why this film is successful. If you were to cast someone else in this role as the queen, I don't think it would have worked as well. She just happened to be in the right place at the right time with like the perfect amount of skill and talent. So speaking of her and, and pretty much this scene, uh, she sings a song about herself. The I just called, I just wrote down Queen's song, but um, it, it might be called Witch's Egg. Yeah, and, it's Witch's Egg. And, and this is my favorite song in the movie. Mine too. This is one of the only ones that's original. Um, and I think Susan Tyrell wrote the lyrics. By original, do you mean the others were part of Oingo Boingo acts in the past? No, I mean that the other ones were literally other people singing that were lifted from 30s and 40s songs. Gotcha. Yeah. So this song is original. The introductory song, like the theme song is original. And then the final song... I think is original because I, I know that the that Oingo Boingo used it in the past, um, but I think all the other songs are lifted from other places. But th yeah, this song is awesome, and her performance of it is awesome. Like she might not be the best singer in the world, but her attitude and her acting makes up for it. Even if you don't want to watch this film, this scene standalone is on YouTube. Yeah, so go watch it. Um, we see Renee in jail and uh, Renee and Frenchie. So Renee, again, is Squeezit's twin sister, in quotes. I swear Renee in jail has some of the movie's best lines. Such as? Uh, at one point, she says, the queen promised to ream us with 12-inch cattle prods and I'm still waiting. Something <laughs> like that. Yes. Yeah, I mean... All of her, all of her lines are are gold. But everyone, all of the women in the Forbidden Zone, aside from the Queen and the Princess, wear the same like Mickey Mouse Club getup. Did this have any effect on you, or was it just another random image? Random image, but consistent. 
Yeah, I mean, it adds to the visual scheme. And also, I have to think about at the time, what was a more iconic image of youthful innocence than the Mickey Mouse Club? So putting it in this context, again, is like, not only it go back to what I said earlier about this being absurdism and it taking the power away from images. That doesn't mean that we don't come to the film with preconceived notions and associations for these images. So all of those preconceptions and those that past baggage like mixes into the experience of the film. And so little things like this that just seem like random design choices because it's not original to the movie, because it's lifted from somewhere else, it creates a different experience than you would have watching a normal movie. You Does know, that I make really, sense? Yeah. Um, you know, I actually completely missed comparing the Mouse Ears to the Mickey Mouse Club. And Disney was so big. I mean, they're still so big, but... You know, in the 80s, they were so big back in the day that, yeah, you, that is something you would definitely associate with, specifically the Mickey Mouse Club. The the other thing I want to mention about the Forbidden Zone, uh, aside from the the consistency of the imagery, is the genius of the set design is that I never get the impression that I'm just looking at like a single room or at a set. It really does feel like a whole world. I don't know. I, I kind of disagree a bit. I, 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 I feel like they're all sets, but I love how the actors treat it almost like a set. Like it's very self-aware. Like there's a scene where a character jumps through a window. Well, there's multiple scenes where characters jump through windows and it's clearly just made out of like paper, like painted construction paper. And so instead of shattering the glass because it's, you know, just paper, they just jump through it and make a giant hole. Yeah, I I don't know. I But they add the sound effect of breaking glass. It, yeah, but... Uh, yeah. It's, it's not realistic, but it also doesn't feel like artifice to me. It feels like a real world with its own rules. And I think that's because of the consistency. It's not like we're seeing props next to real things. We're only seeing props. <laughs> yes, the whole world is prop. Yeah. So we get a great interaction between the queen and king where they're fighting about Frenchie. And the king has some great lines here. This is where he talks about his his army of zombies that he's going to have. Yeah, that doesn't happen. But and, my attention was mostly towards the chandelier. Yeah, that that almost fades into the background for me. Really? The the man holding four candles, two in his toes? What my eye goes to in this scene is again Susan Tyrell's face and her expressions. She has a fantastic line where she says she's leaving the king. And he says, but where will you go? What will you do? And she says, just go on living, I guess. And her delivery of that line is, it's fantastic. I don't think she had really any intent on leaving. She's just trying to get the, the sympathy from the, from the king. Oh, yeah. I mean, we know that because in the end, when 
spoiler alert, when she's dying, uh, she says, you were the only decent thing in my life. <laughs> so we know that she has like a real loyalty to him, despite what she says. Um, so we go back to the school and this is where we get the alphabet song, which is was originally in a Three Stooges sketch. But of course, they add on and change the lyrics in this version. And they also incorporate sort of a 70s funk number where the black kids dance on the desks. Uh, I think that this song, as ridiculous and absurd as it is, I think it's really well choreographed. I think it's really well, like the the mashup of the different songs into one is immensely clever. And it it really seems like I'm watching a professional theatrical group. I mean, it is a professional theatrical group. Well, I mean, they performed on like street corners and stuff. I don't know that they were amateurs to a degree. They were on stage. They had stages. Well, they they won the Gong Show as as whatever that whatever credit that gives you. But uh, I was not uh, I was not aware that this was uh, like a medley of sorts. I didn't know it was um, inspired from something directly from the Three Stooges. Oh yeah, the the Three Stooges version sounds almost identical to this version. Of course, when Flash starts like saying "fuck you," that that's not in the Three Stooges bit. And the oh, seven really? and nah, and the seventies funk bit isn't isn't in the Three Stooges clip either. Um, but other than that, it's lifted pretty much uh, directly. Um, but that's one of the beauties of this soundtrack to me is that it does create a cohesive whole out of music with all these disparate sources as well as like Danny Elfman's first film score. And of course, Danny Elfman would go on to do like brilliant musical scores that he's still doing today. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I love this scene. I, I don't want to minimize it. Like this is one of my favorite scenes in the movie. So after this, we, at some point we see that squeeze it actually sleeps like on a roost with chickens. This was really funny to me. <laughs> this whole scene is that a left field. I'm, I'm kind of surprised they even bothered to go into a backstory here. So did you recognize uh, Squeezit's dad, the sailor? Uh, not, not really, but I am aware after some, uh, some app, some post viewing reading that he was actually a, uh, well, he at least went on to be a famous actor at the time. Oh yeah, I mean he'd done stuff, big stuff before this. Like I think he was in uh, one of the first two Godfather movies. Um, but listeners of this podcast probably know know him most as the killer from Maniac. His name's that Joe is, Spinell. Yeah, that is still on my to watch list. I never saw the remake with Elijah Wood, although I've heard that it's actually good. The original to me is worth it mostly for like the grungy, realistic atmosphere and the gore effects by Tom Savini, which are really well done, but it's worth seeing. So we also get in this scene, a great exchange between squeeze it and a chicken. This is one of my favorite quotes in the movie too. Squeeze it is lamenting like, what is he gonna do? And the chicken says, 
you know the chickens are always ready to help you whenever we can. But, and then Squeeze It finishes the thought, what can chickens do? What can chickens do? Yeah. Um, and he receives a phone call. From the sixth dimension. Man, can you imagine that infrastructure? Well, that this is what I was getting at earlier. It's like the sixth dimension is just a normal part of this universe. Like people just accept it. They've got phone lines. I, I'm starting to think it's not really a dimension, right? Like you kind of just go downstairs, dig a little deeper. There you go. Yeah. I, I mean, you do get this wonderful animated sequence of like people going through intestines to get down there. I, I like how his reaction to responding for help is I have nothing else to live for. Why not? <laughs> right. And of course, we're totally skipping over the parental abuse that he suffered on the chicken stand. Well, um, talk about the parental abuse uh, and I'll be right back. Just keep talking. I mean, the scene is, is pretty reminiscent of what was present in Female Trouble, where you have this mother and father completely emotionally uninvested in their child. Like, they clearly do not love or care about Chicken Boy at all. In a more normal movie, I suppose I would find it a little surprising that... The father is uh, seemingly unaffected by the fact that this is his son. Like, I think a normal father would be like, how could this have happened? So but it I, is the forbidden zone. So it, uh, it has, has no meaning. Yeah, so I'm back. Um, the, the next scene that I really love, and, and stop me if I'm skipping anything important, but is after... Squeeze it has gone down into the sixth dimension. He's kidnapped by demons who take him to Satan. The first thing about this scene is that we get an image of him being taken to a big gate, which is animated, that says, like the famous Dante quote, abandoned hope, all ye who enter here. I actually find this scene and some of the other ones like it sincerely powerful. Like, not funny, not not silly but it's actually because of the effectiveness of the music and the set design it, it's it's really effective to me i think it's just the setup where they want to portray hell as this like big serious scary place and then as soon as you get there it's just like a ensemble orchestra with <laughs> you know elf elfman as satan at the head of it <laughs> Yeah, so we get some more blackface in this scene. One of the demons is wearing blackface. Um, I'm curious. I don't know if uh, they replaced this guy with clownface or not. Maybe no he gets a pass because he's a he's a demon. Um, but Satan is played by Danny Elfman, and he sings a version of Minnie the Moocher, uh, which like I like the Cab Calloway version, but this is really cool to me. Uh, this is one of my favorite scenes in the movie. I, I'm woefully ignorant of like music from from like that time period, so I didn't even know that was an already existing musical piece. Oh yeah, it was probably Cab Calloway's most famous performance. Is is many the moocher? They they perform a version in the Blues Brothers too. I have not seen it. Like I said earlier, I'm not a big musical guy. Uh, you should see the first Blues Brothers. It's really funny. 
Um, but yeah, so it, this scene, this scene is great. One thing that that I think it, it's so random, but it really caught my eye this time is squeeze. It makes a deal with Satan that Satan will rescue uh, Renee and Frenchie if he brings him the princess, the topless princess. And so squeeze it goes and grabs her and brings oh, her back man. to Satan. So effortlessly. Oh yeah, but totally effortlessly. And all of that that stuff about being a weak chicken boy who could do nothing uh, seemingly goes out the window for this scene. But once he gets the princess back to Satan, she starts performing the chicken mannerisms too. Yeah, Almost like the chicken performance is infectious. I mean, maybe, maybe it is like a transmittable disease. I don't know. I don't know what the inspiration is for this scene, but I that touch really makes me laugh for some reason. We see the the princess who is normally like very haughty and sort of valley girl like uh, just takes on the mannerisms of a scared chicken. It's probably just like, like the show that she is actually afraid. Yeah, I guess. Although immediately after Satan kind of finishes his bargain, she seems to be back to her normal self. She seems like she's almost trying to be seductive. Mm. So we get a lot of scenes where like characters are just chasing each other around and trying to find one another. And eventually it all culminates with the queen, the ex-queen, who I forget this woman's name. She was, she was one of Andy Warhol's regulars viva viva plays the ex-queen who the king has been keeping as a prisoner uh rather than killing which the queen wanted him to do and so we get a cat fight a literal cat fight because they're playing cat noises over top of it of the two queens fighting apparently these two women really hated each other so much that they legitimately injured one another in this fight Wow, why was there so much animosity? I don't know. I haven't looked into it, but apparently they really did. Like they were both bleeding afterwards is what Richard said. Hmm. I love the outfit though that Viva is wearing. It's kind of like a like a leather tunic that's really boxy and then she has like nothing underneath. I don't know. It's it's a really it's a look. I don't it, I don't really think I I really noticed it much like uh like the lapels i guess i was just sort of blocked out by you know susan tyrell's acting well and all the other insanity that's going on on screen i mean we've got a cage with like 50 men in it who are all just humping like humping things to death before uh dumping prey into a spike pit right so um this is the scene where we get the line you were the only decent thing in my life after susan tyrell gets shot by ma hercules and does that wonderful shrug and facial expression and then she says to the queen tell me how you loved to and then he he continues i love to feel your nipples stiffen when i caress them with my fingertips what what do you think of this exchange i think it, it you know you're expecting him to say something like romantic and long lasting 
and then just says something like, hey, I just, uh, you know, like touch your nipples. Yeah, it's it's taking what would be an iconic dramatic moment in a normal movie and utterly trivializing it. Much like the entirety of this film. Right. So we get the final scene where the whole cast is together and they they sing a Forbidden Zone song. And one thing that struck me during this scene that I've never noticed before is there are black actors in this scene. So we see normal black people, like not blackface, but normal black actors. So that to me goes some way toward showing that for Richard Elfman, the blackface was not about showing a racist image or portraying black people in a particular way. It was about using an absurd image out of context. That's a good point, but it's not like this is the only scene where they're in it. Um, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure it's the same actors from the back of the classroom and the same actors that are basically breakdancing at the uh, La Brea Tar Pit factory, a scene we skipped over. But um... Yeah, although I shouldn't have because I really like the music in that scene and I love the animation in it. I feel like it was probably like the, I mean, it was so forgettable. We skipped over it though, right? Like it has the least impact on the film when compared to everything else. I don't know. I really like that scene. I, I love how the mechanical noises um, are integrated into the music. It, it's, it is kind of an aside, like it doesn't impact the primary plot, but uh, I think it's a great aside. It's very entertaining. Do you think there's anything like deeper about a factory that creates tar i mean obviously you can extrapolate some meaning there but again it's not it's not focused right like the film is so chaotic that you just kind of got to bring your own thoughts to each image or event that you see what strikes me the most about this scene is that Paw Hercules is one of the workers and he's working in this factory and you can tell both by this scene and things he says afterwards that he feels objectified that he is the way he describes it as he's nothing but a rat and I think that that's certainly an indictment of the way that industrial capitalism makes people feel I think that might be a little deeper than what the film was trying to portray but um i see where you're going yeah i mean we were talking uh before the podcast about what richard elfman's political ideology might be and maybe i'm uh reading in like a marxist event that doesn't belong there but again there's so many disparate images and ideas and events in this film that it almost does just become up to the viewer, whatever meaning you bring to each individual scene. One final thing I want to mention, Pa Hercules is kind of like kind of has a stereotypical, as we said earlier, Yiddish inflection to his voice. But there's also a character in the Forbidden Zone named Mr. Bernstein that has a really characteristically Jewish presentation. And this has been called anti-Semitic by people. But apparently, this character was played by uh, Richard and Danny's 
grandfather and they said that he wasn't acting that it was just him it was just how he acted all the time so i thought that was interesting to note yeah i don't really have any input on that all right well is there anything else you want to touch on about this film before we rate it so i had no idea that there was interest on the director's part to create a sequel i was really surprised to see a slew of like crowdfunding request videos on youtube oh yeah he's been trying to make a sequel for like 10 years but there's something about the vibe like bad auras like if i was like um orb mama that like was an anti-vax and i believed in like holistic medicines i'd be like yo there's a bad aura coming from from this from this from these from this crowdfunding campaign something just seems off about it and i think it goes back to what I was saying earlier that I think the original film was like a once in a lifetime production where everything just lined up perfectly to create this like absurdist masterpiece, right? I don't believe it's possible to really replicate something like this for a sequel. I, especially like what I was saying earlier, the special effects that were used at the time are now things that can be done on like a, a cell phone app. So it's not really going to have the same effect as it did then i'd imagine if they were to do a sequel how much of it do you think could be filmed in front of green screen i mean i don't know if any of it would because i one if if richard elfman is crowdfunding then he's not as susceptible to studio pressure and i think that he would still bring his same performance art roots to it so i think that he would want to set it up in such a way as well that it could be performed the same way this movie was performed i mean i don't know that for sure i haven't seen the crowdfunding videos but i'd be all for it i don't think with the level of absurdity here i don't think there's any responsibility or need for it to be loyal to the same style or the even the same subject matter that you have here but i do think that we're badly in need of absurdist art now i mean there is there is so much meaning attached to every utterance now and i think that for the most part that's a positive step um insofar as for example social justice is being elevated in, into everybody's consciousness right i think that's a positive thing but at the same time i think there is always a role for deconstructionalist to break down and revoke the meaning and power of things. And so I would love to see a work of absurdist art that I think accomplishes what this film does, but for our present day. But I feel, I just don't know how the aesthetics of something like that would work. Like for the Forbidden Zone, right? Like even for a film in the 80s the production quality wasn't the best and it was apparently accidentally in black and white and all of these things kind of helped create this atmosphere that like accentuated the absurdism to me and i i just feel like if you were to take that similar subject matter and bump it up to like 4k with you know cgi animations and like wonky ass costumes. I just don't think it's going to have the same effect. I don't think it's possible. 
I, I mean, A, we don't know how Richard Elfman would do things like the special effects. So I, 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 I certainly tell you it's not going to have like the, the Monty Python style animation. I don't think that stuff like I don't know if anybody can really can really do that stuff anymore. Like traditional animation style. Almost everything is digital now. Yeah, but it doesn't have to me. I, I, I mean, I don't know if John Mudo is still alive, um, but I I don't see why you couldn't do animation like this. Um, it might not be typical, but but what I was going to say is even if you remove the aesthetics, I think you can still get the same sort of spirit or theme. Like, um, have you seen any of Alejandro Jodorowsky's recent movies? No, I think the most recent one I've seen is Holy Mountain. Okay, so like he's made um he's made three movies since two thousand and the film the film style of them is clearly present day and they're much more uh polished than his old films, but they still have his characteristic imagery, they still have the same themes. They still are clearly Yodorowsky movies. And so, I, you know, even if Richard Elfman were to work today and miraculously had a big budget and didn't have to shoestrap it, I still think you could get his sense of humor and his absurdism bleeding through. I don't think modern filmmaking techniques would stifle it. Well, I hope I'm wrong, but that is just a feeling I can't shake. I mean, I have doubts we'll ever see one. It, it, they, they've been saying, like I said, for at least 10 years that it's in development, it's in development, and nothing has ever happened. So Yeah, and I'm sure we'll the see. pandemic didn't help at all. Yeah. I mean, I, I, read, I read an article before we started the cast that said uh, filming is supposed to start soon. And I was like, oh, is this a recent article? And I looked, it was from 2015. Uh, So... Anyway, all right, give your final thoughts and a rating for this out of four. So like as as we've as I've been mentioning at least, ultimately I, I don't think there is any great meaning, lesson, or symbolism present in the sixth dimension. Like every facet of the production, whether intentional or accidental, is like completely incongruous. Like, oh hey, it's opposite day. The little brother is playing by a grown ass man, women are played by men. Men are played by women. Sex, murder, infidelity, all are inconsequential. The settings are composed of pieces that like somehow geometrically attack the senses. And, and like, you know, I, I was under the impression that the black and white presentation was the director's original intent because, you know, it was supposed to be like an homage to like 40 slapstick humor and all that. And and maybe is it is it that all those things? Maybe it is still all of those things, but like, would color detract from that? I honestly don't know. Um, how much of this randomness was like by design, and how much was simply like just the result of like the infrequent chaotic production schedule? That is something that like I'll probably still mull on when I think about this film. But you know, I, I don't really know, and maybe it doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, it is like disjointed, bizarre, and offensive. But you know, only for the sake of being disjointed, bizarre, and offensive. Uh, it, it does hold a special place in my heart for being 
one of the first films that ever left me with that genuine like what the fuck stupor after watching it and i think even despite the problematic racial depictions it is a a 70 minute acid trip that any cinema buff should like endeavor to experience so i'm gonna go with four stars this film is like uh a, a very a very important underground film i mostly agree with all that i, I think that i see more intentionality here than you do uh in terms of i think that more of this is an intentional vision from richard elfman even if there were things that he decided to change later or he wasn't able to fully realize and i think that you know in some ways we're in the dark because we don't have any footage of the original mystic knights performances uh, but supposedly this is an amalgamation of them to some degree. So we're kind of in the dark about the process that led to the the product we see on screen. But with that said, I don't think it matters. As I've been stressing, I, I think this is a really groundbreaking piece of absurdist art. I think there's an important role for absurdism in deconstructing the power of images and gender roles and language and racial terminology and all of the things that have baggage that we see in this movie. Um, I feel like they lose that baggage by virtue of being in such a silly, ridiculous context. Um, But at the same time, I feel like I bring so much meaning to this film just by virtue of the associations I have with the images, like I was talking about with the Mickey Mouse Club ears. On top of all of that, I just find this movie immensely entertaining. I love the music. I think especially given that some of these people were amateurs, the performances are really clever and comedic. Uh, Susan Tyrell is fantastic. It's interesting to see where Danny Elfman came from and like the original source of both his film composing and uh, the music of Oingo Boingo in the 80s, uh, which I'm a big fan of. So all in all, yeah, this is a must-see, one of the classics of underground and absurdist uh, film, four stars. All right, so... For next week, uh, we hope that you come back and join us. We're going to be talking about the Joe D'Amato Italian sleaze fest uh, Beyond the Darkness, also called Buried Alive, if you have the old thriller big box VHS. Soundtrack by Goblin, directed by Joe D'Amato, who, if you're familiar with Italian cinema, is, I think, one of the masters of sleaze. Um, and value-free filmmaking. Uh, This is a weird, twisted one. Um, So check it out. Uh, It's available to watch on Amazon Prime, I believe. Um, But there's also, I mean, you can now get this film easily on DVD and Blu-ray. I I remember when, like, I first encountered this film through finding the Thriller video at at a video store, and I remember back then, this was like an impossible movie to see. But luckily... Uh, It's really available now, so I highly recommend it. You have anything you want to add before we wrap up, Leland? No, I think you summed it up quite nicely. All right, beautiful. So um, we should be available anywhere you get your podcast. Uh, Please rate, review, subscribe. Um, That'll help us out. 
if you want to write mean things and tell us what you hated, uh, by all means, but we will only be getting better. So I hope you continue to join us and check out all our friend podcast. Um, check out Laser Graves and uh, tell EK he needs to do an Oingo Boingo episode. With all that said, we will see you next week. Ha 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 ha!